Hey there, welcome to the Mental Perk Podcast. I'm Carla Hutcherson, licensed professional counselor. And I'm Brandy Mock, entrepreneur, author, and community leader. And we're here to talk about real people, real issues, and real talk. Hello, we are so excited to welcome our guest, Bram Duffy. He's a PhD in human development, and he is a full-time paramedic in Houston. Welcome, Bram. Thank you. Hello. Bram, tell us a little bit more about, I know you have an extensive history in, in education and all your experience. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, right now, I'm an assistant professor of communication at Kennesaw State University, where I teach online because that's in Georgia, but I also work as a paramedic full-time in Houston. And then the third arm of my life is I am a research fellow with the Institute for Social Innovation at Field and Graduate University, which is in Santa Barbara, California. Wow. That is so amazing. You've accomplished so much. And I think that we're going to learn so much about some of the research that you've done and the things that you are promoting to make, you know, emergency medicine and, and, and interventions even more uh, helpful to those that they're working with. Tell us well, a little bit about what got you into the field you're in currently. So I'm a paramedic. I've been a paramedic for 25 years, and I'm one of those folks who, when I grew up, I thought I was going to be a police officer, but I had a mom who was a nurse. And so, you know, I was pushing those little dump trucks around the house, pretending like I was a police officer. And then when I grew up old enough, you know, I realized that my, my passion wasn't with a gun. It was it was with a needle, I guess you could say. It's kind of funny to, to think about it. But I had a really incredible experience when I was a kid. You know, I was I got to be a camp counselor at a Boy Scout camp. And uh, I did it every summer, pretty much, starting from the age of 14. And the second year that I was there, I was in the first aid building alone, and an adult camper came in because they were in distress. And, you know, the only person that was there was me, and he collapsed and stopped breathing. And so me, as like this 14-year-old kid, um, did the rescue breathing with a backed out mask and did all of the um, things that an adult would do, including call 911, you know. And it was a big deal for me because my mom was a CPR instructor. And I'd been doing this with her my whole life, like dragging the dummies around. And <clears throat> so it was really um, second nature for me when the emergency happened. But then after that, I just sort of realized that, hey, this is this is my passion. And so even as a kid, I called myself a kid because I was like 14, 15. I had a medical bag that was the equivalent of what an EMT would have, you know, that I that I had for myself. So, wow. you so know, by the time I was able to drive, it was pretty clear that I knew I wanted to be a paramedic. That's you awesome. were born. You were born to do this, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. I know it's weird to say it like that, but some folks, you know, I feel sorry for some folks because I know that they don't enjoy their jobs, but I genuinely enjoy my job and not everybody's able to say that. Not even all paramedics are able to say that, I guess. No, that is so true. It's so true. So tell us a little bit about like, as you got older and you wanted to go into this field, you knew that this is the direction you wanted to go. At what point did you decide to 
pursue it and how fast did it take you a lot to learn or did you just kind of push into this and you you already knew a lot because your mom was a nurse I mean being thrown into this at 14 years old knowing that you're impacting and saving a life that's that's pretty massive right there well it was just it was just part of me finding my life passion and so I did lifeguard training and then I did EMT training when I was I think I started when I was 17 I wasn't quite 18 and then you know, to become a paramedic, that level usually takes two years of, of schooling. And so I was able to finish it when I was 19. So I was a, the youngest paramedic in the state of Illinois at, at 19. And what that means is that I was carrying narcotics to give emergency patients and needles to stick people and, you know, that kind of level of responsibility when I couldn't even drink alcohol yet. I, I was excited. You, know? you weren't <laughs> even legal to drink alcohol, but you could administer yeah. pain meds. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened was that I, um, the honest thing was that I decided that paramedics just don't make that much money, especially back then. And I was afraid about my lifestyle. So mm-hmm. I decided that I was going to do sort of these parallel jobs. And so I went to, I kept going to school and I did my master's degree in speech communication. And I was a, and have been a speech teacher, public speaking teacher for a long time since then. And so I had sort of these two tracks in my life, one where I'm a paramedic. And then also, I um, also teach um, communications classes. And right now, for example, I teach at Kennesaw State University, where I teach there is health communication. I have a 300 level class that I teach juniors and, uh, and seniors there. But when you're in school, you know, it's, especially when you enjoy what you're learning, it's easy to get the fire underneath you, you know? And so I was studying in my scholarship, I was studying communication between paramedics and the people that are the bystanders and people that influence the paramedic, I'm sorry, influence these situations that paramedics walk into Mm -hmm. because I found that sometimes people are scared or people are, in different states of disbelief or not able to comprehend the situation. There's all kinds of reasons that a a patient would argue with me about going to the hospital. And I found that is one of the big problems because especially originally when I did rural EMS, it seems like that, you know, the ambulances are not that common. And so for a man to take an ambulance, it's like a week kind of thing, for example. You know, there's all different stereotypes that come with this. And so I studied how this, how paramedics have arguments with patients, you know, for their benefit, you know, trying to talk them into stuff. So it started with there for me. And I got uh, in school through my PhD program, and I really was interested in the same topic. I was interested in how paramedics make decisions. So you went from how do paramedics argue for the benefit of the patient to try to talk people into stuff to um, over to paramedic decision-making. And so during that time, I was in a PhD program where I, one of the professors was a professional hypnotherapist. And so the influence that he had on me was pretty incredible because I wanted my PhD program to be straight up and normal, you know, as normal as anybody's would be because uh, I don't want anyone to roll their eyes when they see the topics I write about or do research about. And so the professor that was so strange in my life that uh, I had these connections with that I met through my school process, I never took any classes with him. 
And, and so even though he has two PhDs and also was an EMT firefighter when, when he was younger and had these cool connections with me with horses and we had a lot in common that I, but anyway, he was just really eccentric. And so an eccentric professor was something I was sort of, avoiding. And then as I was finishing my program, I got to be closer and closer with him and took what he was saying a lot more seriously about the ideas that he had for hypnosis. I'm going to stop you there for just a second, because I know we're about to really get into this, because I know that your work that you're doing right now has really been, uh, it started back here in this area of your life when you were doing your PhD. I did want to kind of highlight a little bit about like as a paramedic, what are your experiences with paramedics who struggle with mental health as well as patients who struggle with mental health? Tell us a little bit about those experiences. So right now there are there's an exodus right now in emergency medical services. It's really hard for people to keep their jobs, and it, some of it has to do with the, how there's a lack of good management training in EMS, but also lack of resources happened. And so there's a number of things that can lead to paramedic and EMT burnout. And so that's one thing that is. I guess it would be highlighted as one of the major problems in the industry and it's being addressed kind of aggressively right now. Thank goodness. And there, there are different organizations that are, that are working to make a difference. But, you know, when it comes down to doing a job that's really difficult to do without much support from your community or from management, you know, and, and not maybe in some areas not making much money. Um, there, um, the other complication is that there are hospital deserts in a lot of parts of our country where, you know, you, there's not even an ambulance. So you were talking about an ambulance that comes from way out of the area to be able to to help someone. So there's a lot of things that can add to the stress for a paramedic. But for patients, there's two things I want to mention, especially for for your viewers, because. I think that this is an interesting perspective that not a lot of folks think about when it comes to patients. But, you know, as a paramedic, I have to share that there are two kinds of patients that I think get miscategorized and misunderstood. And as a paramedic, with my experience, um, I, I think that it's worth mentioning that the folks who are homeless, m- many folks have different ideas about the homeless population, but for those that don't know, I want to share that the majority of the people who are homeless have a mental health problem, and that's the whole reason that they can't live with society and they are homeless. And so if that mental health problem might be drug abuse or it might be something like schizophrenia or it might, you know, there, there's a range of things that it could be. But I find, you know, this is a, the interaction that I have all the time on my job to help homeless folks. And this is what I see. And so from the inside, it's not something that uh, most folks, I think, think about because a lot of us wish that we could hand someone some money and make it better. But if we think about it, that's why in some communities, there's signs up asking not to feed the homeless and not to support them. And the reason why is because um, the effort is going into focus on the mental health aspects through programs instead of just enabling the person, you know, to stay on the street. And, you know, in Houston, it's hot. It's so hot sometimes, you know, big parts of the year. And it, it 
it emotionally bothers me, you know, to see the the homeless not being taken care of. And I wish there was a way that I could scoop up everyone in the homeless population and give them a hug and say, hey, let's 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 help you. But the mental health resources in, you know, they're, so in, limited. In, yeah. they're yeah. not there in our emergency departments are overrun. And if, if there are lots of emergency departments in this country that have maybe one third of the whole patient population that's in the ER are just psych patients that are on right. psych holds that are waiting to get into other places. So when you come into the emergency room with a chest pain or with, you know, an allergic reaction or something regular, you it, it might be a surprise to realize that you know, they're, they're super busy and it's because of that mental health group. Yeah. Yeah. That's just so interesting. And I know that, um, Mental health and homelessness is so interrelated, and I know that paramedics are faced with that constantly. They're having to see so many things that ordinary and people don't see. So, um, and I feel like the the work that you're doing and the book that you wrote, this is all going to play into some of these things, and it's going to also affect the mental health of the patient, but also the mental uh, mental health of the paramedics as well. So let's talk about that. You've you've authored a book called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medicine Settings for Life-Saving Therapeutic Outcomes. Tell us a little bit about your book and what you hope uh, the audience will get out of it. My book has a real potential for helping paramedics and other first responders who are working with people that are in an emergency situation, be able to use words to make a difference. And what I mean by that, just first of all, there is not a really good specific training that paramedics or EMTs go through to help with what to say to a patient during an emergency. So if I have a person who is scared or I have a person, you know, who can't breathe or I have a person who has a, is, is bleeding to death, I mean, there are, these are the kinds of things we face. The actual words that we say, a lot of times the paramedics that I have interacted with and that I've seen in the field can be sort of rough with these folks, right. like sort of interact with them in a, in a fast questioning, rough kind of way. And the, there's two sides to this. On one side, you know, the paramedic is going through an extreme amount of stress because mm-hmm. they've just taken the alarm. They've navigated to get to you. They've you know, come to you emergency style and and carry bags that are probably heavy upstairs mm-hmm. to probably get to you. And so they want to know that you're not dying. You know, that's actually what's on their mind. And right. I wrote a They also don't know what's info. ahead of ahead of them with the, the right. emergency. They don't know if, you know, what the level of emergency it is. It could be something very right. dramatic. Well, and then I want to also to pause you because I think it's very interesting. You're in a very stressful field. You're stressed. The patients are stressed, and then you already you already said you emphasize that you guys don't get a lot of training on that, like what to expect with the emotions and how to process that. That's that's super interesting to me because that is the number one field you're going in. It's fight or flight for a lot of people, even for y'all sometimes, depending on what the situation is, on how you're having to address the patient. It's very interesting that you guys don't get that kind of mental health training to prepare you for the field. I agree. And the general population, everybody out there probably thinks that when I face an emergency patient that is not breathing, or if I face an emergency patient, you know, these major cases, most folks think that dealing with that situation is extremely stressful. But what I propose to everyone is that actually doing the job of 
interacting with the with the patient, doing the tasks that are necessary. I think that that's not the most stressful time for the paramedic. I, I think the most stressful time for the paramedic is between the time they get the alarm and they figure out what's going on with the patient. Mm-hmm. And it's because we are, I don't know how else to say it, we are experts in saving lives. So yeah. we are looking for what is you know, the life threat that may, you know, be triggered. And so after we know what life threat there is, we know how to fix it. So as long as we know what's going on, we know the path to go to fix the problem. And, but the unknown part is just really scary. And I wrote a article in the journal of social science and medicine, which is a, um, a highly regarded journal. And that, article I wrote was just about that. I did a study looking at and talking to paramedics about the time between they get the alarm and the time that they call out or they figure out the differential diagnosis for the patient. And differential diagnosis is a fancy word for it's when they figured out what they think they know what's wrong with the patient. And the article was, was called Paramedic Perspectives of Job Stress, Qualitative Analysis of High Stress, High Stakes Emergency Medical Situations. And that came out just this last month. And I'm really excited to say that that kind of uh, scholarship is what helps us figure all of this out. And like I said, this is one theory that I'm putting out there that to say, hey, this is really the most stressful time that, that we have to think about. Now, based on you saying that and, and interviewing other paramedics, are they agreeing with what you said? I mean, is that the feedback you're getting, that that is the most stressful time for them as they get ready to go in? So when you ask that specific question, mm-hmm. um, you get a lot of different answers that are all over the board. But then when I turn it around on them and I say, well, let me propose to you what I suggest is that this is the most stressful time. And then I get a response, usually something like, oh, yeah, that is right. Or, you know, so usually it's one of those things that I have to suggest. But what I studied uh, in my uh, in my work so closely was about asking them to describe that stress. So after they uh, talked with me about those situations, I wanted them to describe what it's like. Mm-hmm. And one of the respondents told me that, um, I don't remember the specific story off my head, but what she was telling me was that as a paramedic, it's really interesting because when she goes home, she had a boyfriend that she would share her day with at the end of the day. And she said that her boyfriend worked in trading stocks and sometimes would lose huge amounts of money, sometimes gain money too. But, you know, when he had a bad day, he would lose a huge amount of money. And he would tell her that, you know, my bad days can't compare to your bad days. Your bad days, you might be scooping, you know, scooping someone's brain matter off of your boot tread, you know, and, and seeing little kids die versus me just losing money. And so it was just really interesting, the perspective that she was able to talk about how her boyfriend saw her job and mm-hmm. uh, compared to the stress that he had, because losing a huge amount of money is stressful. Well, yeah. it is, but it, it's good that he takes, he was able to ana- have that perspective that because yeah. a lot of people yeah. would not have that perspective. That's very interesting. You know, I think as we go through this, um, Bram, I think I would like you to give us an example of what are you trying to change and what are some of the things that you've heard paramedics say that you feel like isn't as helpful to the patients and what is it that your research is trying to make a difference in? Okay, it's a great question. So one of the things that I've always learned the most from is watching other people do stuff that I thought was not good. You know, if I watch a situation and I think, 
gosh, if I ever run into that situation, I'm going to handle that totally different. You know, those are my big learning moments. And some of the things that I really focused on, partly because I was studying communication in school at the time, but I've always seen paramedics be sort of rough with their patients during their initial patient interview. And I wrote an article in the Journal of Emergency Medical Services this last month about uh, rapport building and the importance of rapport building with your patient from the very start of doing things like introducing yourself to help them feel comfortable. And um, the opposite of that would be to walk in and just start asking question after question after question, not even announcing themselves or, you know, saying anything. And the real reason that this is important is because my co-author and I, for the book Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings, his name is Four Arrows that I had mentioned. He and I have a theory that really pushes the idea that the amount of fear that folks go through during these emergency situations is strong enough to predispose them to being in a hypnotic trance. And so it's one of the things that paramedics see pretty often when they come and and meet up with their patients that are in distress. We see that they are in this actual trance. I didn't know that that's what was going on, that it, that, um, that this was what was happening for my patients. But once I was able to spend time with Four Arrows and looking at this as a theory, and then I got to read well over 250 books and research studies on hypnosis, I am fully on board with this. And, you know, across healthcare, if you mention hypnosis, especially to an emergency room doctor, They'll roll your eyes. Uh-huh. They'll roll their eyes at you. Yeah. And the reason is just because there's the training has not been there in, in this area. And we think that it's time. And especially for paramedics who are encountering these patients within the first hour or so that, that they're dealing with this, that we need to help train them on how to communicate the best with patients like this. Because it's- what happens is that you can help a person feel better and be better mentally and physically with your words, or you could make them worse. Well, and so knowing that and seeing that means that we, we have to uh, try to address the, the issue. Well, it's really more of a, and like you said, with the emergency doctors, it's, it's more of anything that's more of a holistic standpoint. You're right. Medicine's not a hundred percent on board with that. It just, it's not the norm for them, but Thinking about what you're saying here as a patient, I mean, just simply telling them to breathe. You know, think about yeah. your your breathing. I mean, it's it's. Yeah. I can it's, see how this is such an awesome idea. Yeah, it's so interesting because I have a dentist, you know, and everyone has fear of the dentist. And I know you you talk a lot about a fear hypothesis, and I think this kind of feeds into yeah. this. Everyone kind of fears the dentist and the pain that goes along with that. And so she does a lot of kind of hypnosis talk while she's going through the procedures, and it really does work. Like you stop thinking about what she's doing in the procedure, and you're focused more on her talk and her tone of voice and what she's saying and all the relaxing words. And it seems like this is kind of the same idea that you're, that you're talking about. Yeah. And so the difference is that what she would probably be doing if she's using hypnosis and it sounds like she is, she would need to go through an induction process with her patient. And that means some way of helping that patient focus on her and Mm -hmm. her alone and be able to, sort of start at this partnership with the patient, the patient has to be ready to give up 
to um, give up some control and give up uh, and give in to a partnership. And so a lot of hypnosis, uh, there's a stigma behind it because we think that there's some kind of brain control thing involved. And our government, um, just to share, our government has done mind control studies and um, some pretty crazy things. And what even those studies that our government has done that have been, you know, released years later have shown that hypnosis is not something that you can do to someone. It's something that you have to do in partnership with someone. Right, right. I agree you know, with it's that. Not, it's not a mind control thing, right. you know. It, so that's, you know, the, that's the difference between so what's going on. How hard have you found it, though, with your technique? to be able to do with your patients, being that they're in distress. I mean, you're just talking about it's kind of a two-person deal. If you've got a person that's in shock, they're in cardiovascular distress, whatever it is, how are you able to connect with that patient to get them to the point of being calm and, you know, more responsive? Well, luckily, I've seen so many patients that I'm able to truthfully tell a patient that, I have taken care of lots of folks who have faced what you are facing, and I have been able to help get them to the hospital and get them on a better track, and I'm here to do that for you also. Mm. And no one does that, and I, you know, I'm able to do that. And so it, it starts out with when you – we have to imagine a person that's in an extreme amount of fear. So let's go to those cases that are big time, like you've fallen from – a roof and probably shattered your pelvis, but don't, but aren't sure, or you have cut off part of your arm or you have um, chest pain or you have, you know, there are all these um, really serious things that when you're faced with them are incredibly scary. And our, our fear hypothesis is really based on the fact that we think that this amount of fear that is faced by patients puts them into a, this state of hypnosis. And as a result, I think that in, my approach is that I think that everybody is in this state. And I'm going to assume that because I don't know these folks on a regular basis and they, I don't know how they normally interact, but because the chances of them being able to utilize this are so high, I just use, use it with everyone. And it's kind of like conversational hypnosis there's this guy named James Tripp, last name is with two P's, so it's James T-R-I-P-P, and he writes this book called Hypnosis Without Trance, and I've never met, ne- never met him, but I am a fa- uh, I'm really a, a fond of his work because he's a famous hypnotherapist from the UK, and he talks about how you can use hypnosis just in your regular everyday conversation with with folks. And especially in these cases of emergency hypnosis, it's really valuable. And so if you are in desperation for someone to help you, and then the person with the, with the ambulance bags and the badge comes and says, Hey, I'm here to help you. You know, it's really easy for that person to give up control or be like, okay, thank goodness someone's here to help me. You know, and those, um, those positive associations with the help arriving can, can help alone. But then we add to that all the things that sort of make sure that the hypnosis uh, opportunity is there for their, their mind. So we make sure to establish rapport with them and we work on the credibility and comfort measures before we do things like directives, right? Directives that would be, 
hypnosis related. And one of the coolest areas that all of this has an impact in is the area of pain because there are not everybody, yes, we carry narcotics on the ambulance, but not everyone can get narcotics. Right. One of the cases that I get that I feel so bad about all these years later is I had a lady who had the end of her hand shot off by a shotgun and it was probably 50% of her hand was gone. And I desperately wanted to give her pain medicine and she was a larger lady and I made it more difficult for me to start the IV to give her pain medicine. And I just remember, you know, being so frustrated because I uh, couldn't deliver that pain medicine uh, like she needed. And now that I look at that situation and I've spent time with this, I know that I could have used my words to help her, Mm -hmm. you know, to think about, um, the situation in a, in a way that could help her not experience, you know, such great pain. And that's what those dentists are doing too. But the, like and, I said, the difference was, is that they do an induction and, and I don't because they are already a lot of times already in the state. I was doing a little research on this whole topic because I was so interested in it looking at your book. And I, there is um, research that proves that, the hypnotic state, whether self-hypnosis or other, and mindfulness techniques can really help increase pain by 30%. They can increase, you know, working with pain and helping to reduce the amount of pain by 30%. Yeah, reduce pain. Yeah. Yeah, I (laughs) had to correct myself there. Pain tolerance. Pain tolerance, yes. So I had to correct myself there. But yeah, reduce the amount of pain by 30%. And I mean, that's just you know, in little amounts, but just thinking if you're really trained in this and you're actually doing hypnotic techniques, this could really be helpful while you're working to get the narcotics going. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's exactly right. And so I want to be able to deliver positive, helpful messages to my patient, no matter what. And our book talks about delivering positive, helpful messages. And it just so happens that in a lot of these cases, it also kicks in the positive effects and that hypnosis can bring. And either way, let's say that the patient does not uh, benefit from any of the hypnosis stuff that we're trying to, to add to the communication. They will benefit from the positive feeling that they get from someone giving them reassurance. Oh, for when sure. I started, 100%. yeah, when I started, one of the things that uh, when I was in a first responder class, I was probably like 17 years old. I remember that this really old, old EMT taught the class and he was teaching us to be professional first responders. And one of the things that he told us on the first day was that you don't know what's going to happen to your patients and you are not the person who is in a position to make promises to them. So, you know, from the very start, I was baffled that there's a culture in EMS where you don't do too much positive, reassuring messages in the thought is that, well, you don't know if they're going to live or die. You can't make that. And so a lot of times the, the paramedics that I work around might say something like, we're here to do the best we can to help you. But that's like the, that's like the most that they might say. It's kind of yeah. hard to have a little hope knowing that uh, that's being said to you from the professionals that are supposed to be giving you the hope you know it does make sense you don't want to give them unrealistic expectations but at the same time you want to provide empathy and comfort in those moments right but I think Mm -hmm. like any emergency responder you become immune to it and so I think and I'm sure you could probably agree with this 
is that you see a lot of these guys desensitize themselves because it allows them to cope easier, knowing that yep. the outcome might not be as good. But with what you're doing, I think is is so positive because it's not only helping the first responders, but it's helping the patients. Mm-hmm. And also, too, that. what you may be teaching the, the ER doctors. I, I often have to emphasize with people that you guys are the first responders. Yeah. Y'all are the ones on the front line. It's the doctors and the ERs. They're relying on you the most accurate information. And so knowing that you can give them the most details ever and, and applying your technique, I, I would think would be such a positive thing, uh, a step forward for medicine to me. Yeah, it would be great yeah, if this, this is was... going to take a uphill turn. This is, I mean, this is going to take a lot of work because even though hypnosis has been proven scientifically for years, my book starts out talking about all these studies where you can actually see on a PET scan, a PET scan, that's a scan that they a lot of times use for cancer patients and they can scan for, yes, cancer, but they can also scan for things like the use of glucose. So the use of glucose is sort of like the fuel in the brain and how the brain uses that glucose can be seen on a PET scan. And they've been able to prove and and show that if you, you are in a state of hypnosis, your brain is going to light up on the scan a certain way. And if you are not in the state of hypnosis, then those same lights turn off. So, you know, those kinds of studies have been around to show this. And it's just that the, in medicine in general, there's a negative connotation with this. And I understand that with, with new things that this can happen, that, you know, that we are all uh, questioning, but the main thing that I think is a game changer is just the thought and the understanding that, gosh, these folks are already in an induced hypnotic state. And when you as a provider, like as a physician or the nurse or the paramedic, know that information, mm-hmm. we're able to see our patients in a different way. Right. So I'm here to get the word out just in general. Think about your patients and some of those patients who are, have just had the emergency start for them may be in this kind of trance. And so um, that's a real game changer because I can see that on the face of my patient. I can see their fear. And and that means that their eyes are wide or open. Their mouth might be open. You know, they're ready to take in information, you know, and that, that look of, uh, of fear there, um, is really easy to see. And I was like, you know, my, the, do you, the, do you think there's a misunderstanding between the state of hypnosis and uh, shock? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that most folks who are in shock are are definitely in a trance that, you know, th- those things sort of, that's a good question, but I think they're, that they're happening at the same time. There's a physical thing and a, and, a, a, and a mental thing that are happening at the same time. And definitely patients who are in, sto- who are in a physical shock are most likely also going to be in that, you know, mental. And that, I think that totally makes sense. I think it's the way the body is trying to uh, survive. It's in survival mode. So if you were actually mm -hmm. thinking about all the pain you're in and you're not in that trance or hypnotic trance, I think, I think you're going to, the pain's going to be so much more. And I think what, uh, you know, there's a misconception that, you know, people who are in shock can't really hear or or relate to you. But what you're saying is it's actually time that the brain is going to absorb all that that you're saying. I think that there's just, two different things going on, you know, and sometimes the, um, sometimes 
they are both happening. And I want to always assume as a provider that they're in a mental state of shock because I want to protect the communication and be able to help as best as possible. One of the things we do is we suggest that paramedics protect the patient from outside influences that would be negative. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine you're, you as a patient are laying there on the ground and people are helping you, the bystanders might say something like, oh, my gosh, that's so much blood. Are they going to die? <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, know that happens. Are really common. Yes. Yeah. It's super common. And, and so, they got a video in front of you. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. 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 So true. So that's the kind of thing I want to protect my patient from. It's not that I care that the person or the bystander is there. It's just that I don't want them to say negative things because if my patient is in a state of hypnosis, then the things that they hear in that moment can affect them for the rest of their lives. And one of the examples that we give in our book is about a little kid. You know, if you have a little kid who's bit by a dog, then that situation can turn into a lifelong fear of dogs or it could turn into an understanding. And so the words that are said to the, to the little kid at that time make all the difference. And so um, that is really because that those moments are um, moments where they're in a hypnosis, uh, predisposed to a hypnosis state and sometimes in a hypnosis state. You know, I think it's it's interesting, and in, in the work that you're doing, sounds like it could be so helpful to the medical community and paramedics, um, you know, and emergency responders. But you know, there's so many reasons why it hasn't moved forward yet, um, and I think part of that is just the myths surrounding hypnosis in general. You brought that up a second ago, and we've all like kind of seen hypnosis on TV where they do all these weird things and make people act like chickens or whatever, and so people don't take it seriously from that respect. But if you're the, the contents of your book is allowing people to see it in a whole new light. And so I think that that's going to be helpful in hopefully promoting trainings through this, you know, all of this in, in the future, like making sure that EMTs and paramedics and doctors and nurses and medical responders are understanding this state uh, or the fear hypnosis, you know, you know, hypothesis and really yeah, understanding because- what they're going through. Because the, the suggestions that we have about how to communicate are not that complicated. What is complicated is, is trying to get everyone to reset their mind to, to see this as a potential, um, yeah, as, as a potential. And I'm excited about it because, you know, I didn't really, I really did set up in my life 25 years ago to make a difference in how people communicate with their patients. And now that I am at this end of it, it's just, um, it's just really exciting. You know, this is uh, something that has been being pushed for a, a long time by different folks. There's um, Judith Acosta and Prager, uh, Judith Acosta and Judith Prager are also authors that write about the same topic. And I think they have a book that came out uh, maybe 20 years ago called The Worst is Over. And uh, it really dives into this exact same situation. But the difference that our book does is our book works through some of the common problems that paramedics face and gives them suggestions on how to talk. And so one suggestion that, you know, that um, like, for example, I, I know it's a, it's not a pleasant topic, but um, paramedics are faced with taking care of rape victims sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what, what do I say to a rape victim or not say, or, you know, or even a, a patient who is in a, an all kinds of horrible, most, you know, 
horrible situations in their life. And I have picked up patients on the ambulance who were the victim of abduction. And I was the first person that made contact with them after abduction. And I also picked up patients, of course, who have been raped. And, you know, there are, it's just so sensitive. And to think that, that our paramedics just have actually not been told what to say or what not to say. Yeah. It's just, a, it's a really big deal. That, and so that is our astounding book goes to through. Me. Yeah, those are, I'm, I'm just shocked by yeah. that. So what are your plans to create this into trainings or what are, what are your plans to use the information in this book and then try to get that message out? So what I've done is just, it's all so fresh. So the book just came out. And so I am working to promote the book and promote this idea through that. But I also am working to try to get this material introduced into the paramedic training. So I've submitted material to the committees that work on uh, revising paramedic curriculum. And the thing about it that I'm just not so sure about is, you know, this is a human behavior kind of thing. And so in some ways, there are some forms of science that you cannot necessarily apply to this because like we said, this is a partnership that the, per- that the patient gives you. And those cases that, we, that you just mentioned about the stage hypnosis, from what I've studied, those cases of, of stage hypnosis are real. And basically that person that's on stage has just, the low-hanging fruit of the audience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a there's stuff that they do to go through, you know, who they pick. And then after they have sort of done an analysis of the people that, that, that they've picked on stage, they quickly dismiss the people that they're not going to be able to work with easily. So there, it's a, there's a real hypnosis, you know, thing that's even going on there. But for all this to happen, um, it, it is a, it is a partnership. And so, I know I got off track, but I just want to say that, you know, this is exciting. And I hope that we can work to just make this as an introduction. And I think that introducing it alone is going to make a big difference because one of the things that blew my mind was my, uh, my co-author and I were sitting talking together about this topic. And I just said to him, I said, so you are, already a hypnotherapist and you become an EMT firefighter. And so you're seeing patients as a hypnotherapist, but then you see patients as a firefighter, a paramedic or what, you know, he was an EMT. I asked him, how I said, did you figure this out right away? Because, you know, your patients that you have to work to get into hypnotic trance are in one job. And then on the other job, the emergency patients are already there. They're already, you know, in the state of hypnosis. And he said, yes, he said he recognized it right away. And so I think it's really cool that when you take someone who's an expert in one field and then cross pollinate them into another field, just what they can do for that field, you know, it's in general. And he has spent his, um, his whole life working to put these ideas of the book together. And when he and I met, there was a fusion that happened that really allowed this to, to take off because we um, we worked well together and we're really excited about the, this. We mentioned the fear hypothesis earlier also, and that just stems from the work that, that Four Arrows has, and I have done with horses. So Four Arrows is, um, 
is also a horse trainer. And I was never a horse trainer, but I grew up on a farm with horses. And I'm really familiar with how they spook easily and can uh-huh. just move into a state of fear that makes them panic to a ridiculous state, right? right. That's why you be careful when you walk behind a horse. Right. They might get spooked and kick you. You don't want to, you know. So these uh, these kinds of things are also really similar in deer. They, you know, the, they just lose their mind. You know, they're just quickly not right. able to. Uh, to cope, and so this kind of this kind of thing is what we think is going on with patients. It's just you snap into a, a degree of fear that's so great that uh, this hypnosis state takes over. And so what we work to do is protect the environment for the patient, give them um, assurances about our credibility that we're there to help them, and then from that rapport stage, work to give them directions uh, and directives of positive healing imaging. But we are so excited to highlight all of this for you. And I think your techniques are amazing. And I think the work that you and four arrows are doing is going to really change the, the trajectory of, you know, medical care and emergency medical care. So we are so excited to highlight this for you. Um, We, so your book can be found where? My website is professorbram.com, professorbram.com. And you can find all my research, all my stuff, and also um, the stuff that's related to my um, paramedic podcast. But the book is called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings. And you can uh, find it almost anywhere because it was published by Rutledge. So um, anywhere from the Rutledge site, which is, I think, the cheapest place to get it, to Amazon gets it to you right away today or tomorrow. Well, as this progresses and you continue to develop trainings and things, we want to make sure yes. that we get you back on and highlight that as well. You have been a delight to have. We are, we have learned so much from you, and we are so thankful for the work that you do. Yeah, I know I'm going to be sharing. Both of our girls are in med school right now. I think this is a great book to to give to our kids. Yeah, to, absolutely. To let them review it and do research on it. It's really really cool. Thank you again, Graham, awesome. for joining our Thanks podcast. For being yeah. with me. Thank uh, you right. so much. Thank you. If you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health issues, please reach out to talk to someone you trust. Get connected to a mental health professional who can help you find ways to cope and ultimately feel better. If you are having suicidal or self-harm thoughts or thoughts of hurting another person, please go to the nearest ER, call 911, or contact the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you for tuning in to Mental Perk. We hope our talk today highlighted real people working through real issues based on mental health. Our goal at Mental Perk is to make sure every one of you knows you're worthy. We're in this together.